This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Like many people here, and ever since I was a graduate student in David Nelson's life, I've been interested in the genetic basis of this, which is what makes the human brain so unique compared to our most closest related uh, living relatives. And I would argue that, and it has already been alluded to, that geneticists have had a problem for a long time, and this is partly recognized by Alan Wilson and Mary Claire King, is that the genomes of humans and chimps are thought to be virtually identical, about 1.1, 1.2% genetic difference. And I already alluded to that, in fact, at the amino acid level of the proteins, they estimated half the number is closer to about a third of the proteins are identical between the chimp and the human. Yet when you compare it to other organisms, Drosophila, you can compare it to amphibians, even uh, lizards that were compared at that time that Mary Claire was working on, there are species that have way more difference in their amino acid compositions and yet look virtually identical in behavior, in morphology. And so this led to kind of the speculation that it must be regulatory changes that make, make humans unique or structural changes that are actually important in terms of shaping our DNA in ways that couldn't be detected at the level of amino acid differences. So I've been interested in one very specific type of mutation for a very long time, duplicated sequences. You might not think of duplicated sequences as mutations, but they are. They arise as everything else as a mutation. The initial duplication is a mutational event. They're important for genomes for two very fundamental reasons, recognized for many years, long before molecular biology was even a a word. So Sumo Ono recognized this, and even before him, others did, that duplications are the primary force by which new genes are born within species. It doesn't matter if you're a chimp or a fly or a worm. If you want to create a new gene, there's ways to do it that don't involve duplication, but the primary way is to make an extra copy, free it from a selective constraint, new mutations occur, new function. The second actually goes back earlier from guys named Sturdivant and Bridges and Muller back into the 1930s, is this idea that when you duplicate sequence and you create two sequences that are virtually identical, you've actually made the genome unstable. So there's a process called unequal crossing over that can lead to unequal crossing over events that leads to gains and losses of sequence right where the duplications live. So structurally dynamic and the potential to give birth to new genes. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about duplications, recent duplications, things that have evolved over the last 25 million years. We call them segmental duplications. There'll be duplications within a chromosome. They're inter-chromosomal duplications and duplications within a chromosome, which we'll call intra-chromosomal duplications. And here's a map that I've often showed. This is some of the early work that we did as part of the Genome Project, where we actually built the first duplication map of the human genome. So anything that you see here in blue is an intra-chromosomal duplication. So that means it's duplicated along the chromosome. So these are your chromosomes schematically represented. The purple represent the regions that still to this day haven't been sequenced, despite what people claim that the genome is finished. These are centromeres and acrocentric and some telomeric portions of the chromosomes. The blue represent the intra-chromosomal duplications that are greater than 95% identical and greater than 10 kilobases in size. So these are the biggest events in our genome. So a couple things I want you to get from this. You can run the statistics, but you can see it by eye, that this distribution is highly non-random. Certain chromosomes, chromosomes 7, 15, 16, are particularly rich in this. The second point I want you to get from this is that if you look at the pattern, you see that a lot of these lines actually go over 
what appears to be long distances. This is called an interspersed pattern of duplications. That means duplications are born, but when they are born, they don't actually stay close to one another, but they, in fact, distribute, disperse from each one, one another by long distances. In fact, if you do this measurement and ask the question, what fraction of our duplicated sequences are actually separated from their ancestor by at least a megabase, are located on completely different chromosomes, the number is something like 60%. So this is your interchromosomal pattern overlaid. This is actually highly non-random as well, but it's, it's non-random in terms of regions of the genome. So near the ends of chromosomes and near these centromeres are where those uh, predominantly live. All right, so that's the pattern. Why should you care? Well, the fact that you have interspersed duplications in your genome that are separated by sometimes dozens, if not you know, many dozens of genes, means that the genes that live between those duplicated sequences are prone to be deleted or duplicated themselves because they are now inside a region of instability in our genome. And I'm not going to go into great detail, but there are now about 40 different genomic, what is called dis disorders, of which half of them are mediated by recurrent deletions, primarily but sometimes duplications, of the sequences that are these recently evolved duplicated parts of our genome. So this is an example, one that we discovered. It's called, the, uh, with the others, we discovered this back-to-back-to-back, a Coulin-DeVries syndrome. These kids have this region of the genome, only about a half a million base pairs, but it's deleted. And so they are, parents have two copies of chromosome 17, but the child has inherited one that actually is missing about 500 kilobases of sequence, and that's because there are human or great ape-specific duplications located at the boundaries of this sequence. Here's another one that we discovered in 2008. This is a very specific form of autism. These children are born with the exact same kind of problem, except a different portion of the genome where there's duplications that live right here that cause this piece of DNA to be deleted, about three megabases of sequence and about a dozen genes. Every kid that's been born, that we've identified at least thus far, has a form of autism characterized by the frontal bossing of the forehead, very characteristic facial features. So it's a very rare form of autism in the human species caused by this duplication architecture. This is an example of one which doesn't actually have any clear facial morphology. Uh, this is a recurrent microdeletion on, again, chromosome 15, once again mediated by recently evolved duplicated sequences. These kids can either receive kind of an inherited form, but more often they get a de novo, which means that it happened in a germline in one of their parents. Instead of just having one disease, these kids are at risk for multiple diseases. So it turns out that we identified this associated with intellectual disability, but relatively high functioning. Uh, later it was found to be associated with autism. Later it was found to be associated with 1% of epilepsy, so idiopathic generalized epilepsy. And papers from other labs showed that it was an important risk factor, probably one of the biggest ones, for schizophrenia in the adult population. All right, so this is our duplication architecture. And you could ask yourself the question, well, why do we have this organization? It turns out when we go to the genomes of mouse, rats, dogs, cats, platypus, they don't have this type of organization. They keep their duplications organized in clusters and little pockets without being dispersed. So this dispersal of duplications has created a bad design, pardon the pun, and actually makes our genome fragile essentially because of the presence of these duplicated sequences that have evolved over the last 15, 20 million years of evolution. Humans, chimps, gorillas, we all share this, although the exact patterns are different between chimps and gorillas. And to a lesser extent, species like macaque and marmoset have fewer of these compared to uh, that of the great apes. So I'll say the answer, I won't give you the answer, but you've actually heard some of this today. But 
just remember that these are not basically gene-poor regions of the genome. There's about a thousand genes, if you believe your browsers that are out there, that are mapped in these areas of the genome. And Ono argued that this is a primary force by which these new genes evolve as duplication. So before I tell you some stories, I want to tell you one, a couple other features of these duplications. One is that their accumulation over time has been non-random. So work that was alluded to, uh, work that I did with my former postdoc, Thomas Marquez, we sequenced about 100 grade ape genomes to try to estimate which duplications were fixed, which duplications were polymorphic. And this generally accepted phylogeny and the thickness of the lines indicate roughly the, the proportion of duplicated sequence that has been fixed on any branch. So the numbers are not that important, but if you, if for those of you who are interested, what this means is for every base that has been fixed as a result of single base pair mutation, there have been 2.61 bases that have been fixed in this branch as a result of duplication. But the really important, and I think relevant to this audience, is that there is a huge excess, very statistical, in, not in our branch, but in the common branch leading to humans, chimps, and gorillas. This is where we see the biggest excess of duplicated sequences, and almost all the duplications that are causing disease in our species associated with development delay and autism are mapping to duplications that evolved here and evolved right around the separation of chimps, gorillas, and humans. Second point, what I presented in terms of the organization was too simple. So if you actually go and actually look at the structures of these duplications within a chromosome, here's your chromosome 16. And these little numbers here indicate the structures that are indicated on the, on the right here. Anything that you see in color means that we've been able to determine the evolutionary origin of the segment. So whenever you see the same color, that means this came from the same origin, in this case on chromosome 16. And so you get this picture of duplications that are made up of different pieces of the genome that have stitched together to build these complex mosaics or modular structures. And then they have been, they actually, some are very similar to one another, but some are actually very different than one another. But the really remarkable thing, and it's true for every chromosome that's experienced this burst of duplications, is that in those chromosomes you see a specific sequence. And this is indicated here by the red. We call it a core duplicon. It is the place of the genome where it seems to be the focal point for the building up of these more complex architectures. So this sequence is overrepresented way more than you'd expect by chance. And it seems to actually be involved somehow inherently in this duplication and this interspersed duplication architecture. Moreover, most of the recurrent rearrangements that are associated with disease are mated by duplication blocks that have these cores. So we came up with a simple hypothesis back in 2008. Maybe the disadvantage of this interspersed duplication architecture is offset by the emergence of new genes with new functions which override the actually selective disadvantage of this, which is predisposing us to disease or our children to disease, and maybe contributing to the unique features that make us human, i.e. the developing of the human brain. So is there any evidence? So you've seen a version of this slide. Uh, these were examples of the youngest duplications that evolved. And so the genes are listed here at the bottom. This is the copy number that you, we estimate in the genome of multiple humans from Asia, Europe, and Africa compared to chimp, orangutan, and gorilla shown here in gray and black. So these are human-specific duplication events. And one of the things that we and Jim Sakella noticed early on is that there is actually a noticeable enrichment. It's 
borderline significant, because there's not that many genes, of genes that have been implicated in terms of brain development. And what's really interesting is if you actually look at the chimpanzee-specific or the gorilla-specific duplications, you don't see these types of genes. You see genes involved in immune response, genes involved in drug detoxification, but you don't see these types of genes actually being uh, uh, enriched. So, for example, you've heard about SIRGAP2 and RGAP11B at this meeting. GTF2IRD is a transcription factor. It's thought to be important in terms of visual-spatial defects associated with the Williams syndrome disease. GPIN, GPRIN is a G-coupled protein inducer of neurite outgrowth. CHIRFAM7A is a related nicotinamide acetylcholine receptor. HIDIN is a gene that's important in fluid flow in terms of the developing brain. SMN1, survival motor neuron protein, incredibly important in terms of spinal muscular atrophy. Two stories that you heard here, um, in fact, I think rise above a just-so story. The one you heard from Frank about SIRGAP2C. So we were involved in kind of characterizing this duplication. Uh, it turns out that the, the actual gene itself wasn't in the human genome in 2012. So we had to actually go and clone and sequence it. In 2012, it turns out there was only one copy in the human reference, and there are actually four, of which one is a clear pseudogene. Ancestor produced a daughter called SIRGAP2A about 3.2 million years ago with a secondary duplication leading to SIRGAP2C which is uh, this duplicate truncated form that antagonizes the function that's thought to be important in terms of altering spine development as well as excitatory and inhibitory synapses. The other story you heard was from Wieland Hutner. We discovered this, or at least a duplicated sequence, uh, back in the early 2000s uh, and actually characterized it and reconstructed the evolutionary history in 2014. And this was a gene that, as you heard today, thought to be important in terms of increasing number of basal radioglial divisions, or also known as outer ventricular cell divisions, that may be important in terms of increasing neuronal count. The common theme about these is that each of them are truncated with respect to the parent copies. They're not full length. These genes, or these duplications, are also associated with genomic instability. So in the case of 15Q13, that's associated with that schizophrenia uh, form, uh, as well as uh, uh, epilepsy that I showed you earlier. And in these particular cases, it looks as if the duplication itself may have been, in, the incomplete nature of it may have been important for the neo-functionalization of it, for the actual evolution of new function. So I want to end with a story on this last one which we just recently published and we continue to characterize. So this is this picture of chromosome 16 I showed you before. And I'm going to zoom in on these duplication blocks that evolved over the last few million years in the evolution of our genome. And the reason that this particular duplication pair is so important is that recurrent rearrangements of it actually result in the second most common cause of autism in the human species. That is of a deletion of chromosome 16P11.2 and the 25 to 28 genes that map between these. So this is the second most common cause of autism genetically known in the human population, result of duplications that evolved specifically in the last few million years in our, in our species. So I convinced a student about four years ago to go and characterize this and do a comparative evolutionary study, which almost no one ever seems to do at the genetic level because they think the genomes are done. And uh, so in a weak moment, he agreed. So the student was named Xander Nuttall. And uh, this was just showing you kind of our uh, sequencing. So the way he did it was kind of old-fashioned. He took large insert clones and sequenced them and reassembled because we didn't trust the genomes that were assembled. And the way I'm going to show you these pictures, I'm just going to show you, a, uh, this is a portion of chromosome 16 on the orangutan. 
where the little ticks represent genes. So there's 48 genes that are represented here. The color represents the duplicated sequence, at least in my life. I always put that in color. And then the actual arrows here indicate uh, kind of the, what we call syntony. So it's the order of these segments with respect to other mammalian species. So other than the duplications, this order and these genes is completely syntonic with mouse, which diverged about 80 to 90 million years ago. So we believe this is the ancestral state. So then he repeated the experiment by looking at gorillas, chimps, and humans. So I'm going to show you two chimps and two humans, or one human right now, for the exact same region of the genome. So this is the exact same area of the genome. And this, it's 1.4 megabases or million base pairs in orangutan. And these are the two chimp versions of this particular portion of chromosome 16 right here. And there's the human for comparison. Now the colors, remember, represent the duplications. And the arrows represent the segments. And so the first thing you should get from this when you look at it is you say, God, that doesn't look even close to the same. And you'd be right. Because this area of the genome has essentially doubled in size as a result of duplications in the chimp and the human lineage. Those are all the colored bars. The interesting thing is, is that the patterns of duplications are almost completely different between chimp and human. So remember, the different colors represent different evolutionary origins. And you can see that there are some things in that, are, that are similar. These real red ticks are those core duplicons, but by and large, the structure is radically different. More interestingly, if you actually look at the actual segments of the DNA itself, you can see that they're completely ordered differently between a chimp and a human. These segments, these six segments of 48 genes, have been shuffled around in completely different combinations. In fact, my student estimated parsimoniously that you would need 13 large-scale structural changes to actually convert a human to a chimp structure over this. So the idea that we're 99% in this region of the genome actually has no meaning. We are so radically different, but over a very focal region of our genome. Coming back to disease... This is the area that causes autism in our kids. And it's because we have these duplications and a direct orientation of the same type on either side. If you look at the chimp region 5, both haplotypes, they don't have this. They don't have the duplication architecture that would predispose to disease. In other words, they are not predisposed to developing this form of autism because they don't actually have the architecture to predispose to instability. So what do humans look like if you compare them? So thankfully, we look much more similar to one another. So this is three different human chromosomes that are being compared. But we do differ. We differ over only one portion. And this is indicated here by, the air, by these orange and green arrows. There's a set of, there's a region of about 100 kilobases that is expanding and contracting like accordions on this region, which predisposes to autism. But on either side, we are expanding and contracting this 100 kilobase cassette. And if you look really carefully, you'll see that there are four genes right over the area of change. And these are genes that are important both in drug detoxification, we have found, but also a genes important in terms of iron metabolism, this gene called BOLA2. This is a gene that's actually been shown biochemically, both in vitro and in vivo, to be important in terms of recruiting more iron into a cell and, and helping it to essentially uh, become stable in terms of the proteins that it produces. So how do humans vary if you look at thousands of them? So this is 2,500 humans that we're comparing now for a copy number of this 100 kilobase segment, which contains this BOLA2 gene. And here's the, here's the interesting part. You look at humans from all the different continents, and they're quite variable in terms of their copy. But all of them, or I should say none of them, go back to the ancestral state is what you see 
in chimps, gorillas, and orangutans. So every human has at least three. Most of us have five or six of this duplication. Few at three, but none go back to two, is what you see in these species. And here's where it gets really cool. If you compare it to Neanderthal and Denisova, which you've heard a little bit about, they separated from us very recently, only about 400 to 500,000 years ago. They look like chimps and gorillas in terms of their copy number. If we look at archaic hominins, or I should say archaic humans, not hominins, archaic humans, so this would be humans that lived 30 to 40,000 years ago, they look like us. So this is 400,000 years ago. This is 50,000 years ago. So what's really remarkable is that when we estimate the time, and we can do this with phylogenetic approaches, we estimate the birth of this duplication to being about 282,000 years ago. This is where most paleontologists estimate the root of the species Homo sapiens. Well, of course, the plus or minus is 75,000 here. <laughs> One thing we can show from basically doing a, a work, using methods involving evolutionary phylogenetic methods is that the rate at which this expanded is too rapid to be explained based on strictly neutral evolution. So this is not evolving neutrally. It's actually the fact that we haven't gone back to the, the actual ancestral state is very unusual, specifically for a duplication where copy number variation is always occurring. And copy number of this piece of DNA actually correlates expression. So those of you who have more copies actually have more of this bullet two expressed. So we looked at this in terms of expression differences between chimp and human with Rusty. So he had actually published this early work that he mentioned already, looking at induced pluripotent stem cells in chimps, bonobos, and humans. And even though it didn't make his top 10 list, it should have, because this uh, gene was actually expressed 7.5-fold higher on average in the chimp, or I should say the human compared to the chimp. And the reason when we went back and looked at this is because there was variance in actually the copy number estimates in human because he looked at more than one human. So we redid these experiments with his group and we could show that in fact there's a big difference between humans and chimps and bonobos, but the biggest difference happens early in development, what we consider induced pluripotent stem cells. There's still some difference between uh, these NPCs, neuronal progenitor cells, but that's the biggest difference that we see. The one last point I'll make is that in fact when we actually look at the actual gene itself, there is just a simple duplicate gene which is entirely represented. But because these duplications are often mosaic, we actually have identified a gene which looks like a complete fusion of part of BOLA2 with another serotonin kinase, which now makes a duplication that is, has an, a, a fusion duplication that has an open reading frame. This is, in fact, to my knowledge, the only Homo sapiens specific gene that distinguishes chimp, I should say, humans from Neanderthals and Denisova because Denisov and Neanderthal do not have this duplication, therefore do not have the fusion. Coming back to the disease, going back to the kids that actually have autism and mapping the breakpoints of those kids, where do those breakpoints specifically occur? 96% of the children that we've looked at that have this breakpoint associated with autism, their breakpoint maps to the Homo sapiens-specific segment that evolved on the order of about uh, 280,000 years ago. And then this is just to show you that if we look at those kids that have low copy number, because those kids do have lower copy than most, we in fact find out that in fact half of them, and the numbers are still small, they have problems with anemia and I require iron supplementation compared to the rest of the kids with this particular deletion who still have high copies of bullet 2, which do not have anemia 
or, or they very have low incidence of anemia. So we think it's actually relevant also to disease in kids that are anemic with autism. So in summary, I hope I've convinced you how cool our genome and how absolutely chaotic it is with respect to duplications, that we've had this burst of duplications that has occurred on the order of 8 to 15 million years ago before we separated as species, but as we were separating the species. This wired us for disease, so we actually have a lot of additional recurrent structural changes in our genome uh, as a result of this duplication architecture. But this has come with benefits, and we think that we hypothesize the core duplicon hypothesis is that the negative result of having this interspersed architecture is offset by the emergence of new genes. We consider SIRGAP2C and RGAP11B to be some of our best examples of these types, but we think there will be others. And we also think BOLA2 is particularly interesting because it's a Homo sapiens-specific expansion, which we think will be relevant for iron homeostasis or improving our ability to recruit iron, um, and at the same time is predisposing us to the most common or second most common cause of autism in the human species. So when I think about the evolution of our genome, and this is the way I think about it, I think of actually a balancing act between both disease and evolution. Um, these are the folks that did all the work, and I will show you Seattle in the sun, because <laughs> this is just to show you that the sun does shine in Seattle. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.